So the, the most important event in world history is not the signing of the Magna Carta, those of you who are history buffs, as important as that was. The most important event is not the discovery of penicillin. Think about how huge that's been for many, many, many of us, antibiotics, penicillin. The most important event in world history is not the invention of the computer, as important as that is for all of us. It's deeply impacted our lives. Those are all important, but those are nothing compared to the importance of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And I want to help you see this morning through showing you what Matthew wrote about Jesus' death and resurrection. I want to help you see why Jesus' death and resurrection is by far the most significant event in world history. And so we're going to look at Matthew's gospel, chapter 27. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Matthew wrote this gospel somewhere between the years 55 and 65 A.D., Matthew was a follower of Jesus, obviously, but before he became a follower of Jesus, many of you know, he was a tax collector. And in the Roman Empire, the way tax collectors made their money was by charging the people more than they owed and pocketing the difference. So tax collectors were a shrewd, ruthless, wealthy group of guys, and Matthew was one of them. But then Matthew met Jesus Christ. He met the one who taught with unmatched authority. He saw Jesus heal blind people with a word. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He heard Jesus command a storm, a gale force storm to stop, and it stopped. And he experienced in Jesus a love like he had never known before. And Matthew knew that Jesus was no ordinary man. He knew that Jesus was the Son of God, fully God in the flesh. He knew that God had come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Matthew left his tax collecting business, became a follower of Jesus, and then Jesus called Matthew to be one of his apostles. And part of what that means is that Matthew was specially gifted by God to remember everything that Jesus said and did so he could write down his gospel and to be able to write perfect truth from God himself, which is why Matthew's gospel is in the Bible today. It's the first book of the New Testament. And Matthew in chapters 27 and 28 tells us about Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, Jesus had talked already, before he died and rose again, Jesus had already talked about how he was going to die and rise again. Many times, you can read this in the earlier chapters of Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be scourged. I will be crucified, and in three days I will rise again. So Jesus knew exactly what was coming, which shows us that Jesus was not the victim 
of circumstances beyond his control. Jesus had planned the, cir- the, the crucifixion. Jesus intended the crucifixion. Jesus was moving ahead willingly toward the crucifixion. He was not a victim of circumstances beyond his control. This was his desire, his plan in obedience to the Father. So let's pick up the story in Matthew 27, verse 45. Now, we've been studying, or we've been working on how to do inductive Bible study here at Grace Church. Been working on how to study the Bible. And we've been working on teaching passages, working our way through 1 Peter. This is the first time, though, that we're studying an historical passage where we read about events. So how do you do inductive Bible study when we're reading what an author says about events? Well, one of the most important things to remember is that when biblical authors write history, they're not just describing events that took place, but they are carefully selecting which events they're going to include and emphasizing aspects of those events in order to teach us the meaning of those events. So that's what we're going to be looking at in this passage. I've broken it up into four sections. And in each of them, we're going to be asking the question, what does Matthew include and what does he emphasize in order to communicate what truth to us about these events? So let's start with Matthew 27, 45 through 49, where he answers the question, what happens while Jesus suffers on the cross? Start with verse 45. He writes, Matthew writes, Now, from the sixth hour, that's noon, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, the sixth hour was noon, sun brightly shining, middle of the day, perfectly light, but no, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. Now, why does Matthew emphasize this darkness? Why was there darkness all over the land at this time? It's because Jewish people who were steeped in the Old Testament would have known that darkness in the Old Testament often is connected with God's wrath. You can see this in the book of Zephaniah, Old Testament prophet, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Here's what Zephaniah wrote. He said, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness, there it is, and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So Jewish people knew from the reading of the Old Testament that darkness and God's wrath were connected together and At noon on Good Friday, God had darkness cover the sky so that everybody would understand God's wrath is being poured out. What's God's wrath being poured out on? Why is God's wrath here? What is God's wrath doing? And Matthew answers that question in verse 46. What was God's wrath doing? Verse 46, Jesus cries out that he was being forsaken by God. And about the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. You can look that up and read it this afternoon. 
to show that what's happening on the cross is that God is forsaking him. God is pouring his wrath out upon him. That's what's happening on the cross. Now, Jesus is not really asking why God is pouring his wrath out upon him because we've read earlier in Matthew that Jesus explains why. It's because Jesus is giving his life as a ransom for many. He's being punished by God for sin. Now, let me give you some more background about that. Crucial to understand, we have all sinned against God. God is glorious and good and infinitely powerful and wise, and none of us has loved him the way he deserves. None of us has trusted him the way he deserves. None of us has obeyed or worshipped him anywhere near the way he deserves, and that's what the Bible calls sin. And God, as we read in the Bible, is slow to anger, beautifully patient, and yet he's also just. And so every sin must be punished in God's justice. So all of your sin has to be punished. We've all rightly faced judgment from God, but in amazing, costly love. God sent Jesus, his own son, to take on human nature and to take on a human body so he could be punished for the sins of all who would trust him. Great mercy, great cost to God the Father to send his son to suffer that way on the cross and great cost to Jesus to willingly, yes, Father, for your glory, I will do that. Jesus went to the to the cross. And this shows us why Jesus' death and resurrection is the most important event in world history. It's because Jesus' death makes all the difference between you having an eternity forever in the joy of knowing God's love and worshiping him, or you having an eternity being punished by God forever in hell because of your sin. It's the cross that makes the difference in whether your eternity is the joys of knowing God, beholding him in heaven, or the, the horror of being in hell forever. And every one of us is going to be in one of, or the other. And the cross makes the difference. Jesus' death makes the difference. That's why Jesus is suffering on the cross. That's what God's wrath is doing, pouring out punishment for our sin upon him. But now then in verses 47 through 49, Matthew wants us to understand that, that most of the people around there do not get what's going on. They are oblivious. Verse 47, some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. So they heard Jesus calling Eli, Eli, which in Hebrew means my God, my God. But they thought he must be calling for, for Elijah. So they just thought he was a common criminal. He was this common criminal saying, I'm going to call upon some Old Testament saint to come and rescue me. Might as well, it's worth a shot. Eli, come and save me. That's what the people thought Jesus was doing. Then look at verse 48. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. 
Now, just a side note, in Mark's gospel, we read that earlier, as Jesus was on the cross, someone offered him um, a mixture of wine and myrrh, which was a painkiller. And remember, Jesus wouldn't drink that. He's going to fully suffer the punishment that we deserve for our sins. But this is different. This is later, and here he's offered a sponge just filled with sour wine, which is just the common wine that Roman soldiers drank. So probably what's going on is someone in the crowd is thinking, if, he, if Elijah's going to come and rescue him, if I could give him a drink ahead of time, that might put me in, in, in a good light with Elijah. Maybe Elijah will help me in some way, right? So, so I'm going to give Jesus a drink here. Maybe that'll put me in a good standing with Elijah. But the rest of the people didn't think this was a good idea. Look at verse 49. The others said, wait, 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 wait on this drinking thing. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. So they probably thought this man, like, don't waste the wine. Let's wait until Elijah comes and give it to him. I mean, let's not waste the wine here, okay? That's what's going on. But see, the, the point Matthew wants us to understand is this, these people are oblivious. Should we give this common criminal wine? Shouldn't we give this common criminal wine? Will Elijah come and rescue him? They're missing what's going on entirely. Because what's happening in Jesus is God's wrath, that darkness, God's wrath is being poured out upon Jesus. He's being punished for the sins of all who would put their trust in him. And the, these people, all described here by Matthew, are missing it. So Jesus here is alone, facing God's wrath. No one in the immediate purview is understanding what's going on, except for a few people we'll read about, a few women we'll read about in a moment. So that's the feel that Matthew wants us to understand at this point. In these first verses, verses 45 through 49, God's wrath is being poured out upon Jesus, but people do not understand who Jesus is or what he did. That's this first section. Next, in verses 50 to 56, then Matthew wants to answer the question, so who was Jesus and what did his death accomplish? This is beautiful. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So once all the punishment that our sins deserve, once every last drop of punishment was poured out upon Jesus, once God's justice was completely satisfied, then Jesus yielded up his spirit, which means he died. And look what happens next in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now there were two curtains in the Jewish temple. There was one curtain that separated the common area where everybody could come from the holy place where only priests could go. That was one curtain. Then there was a second curtain that separated the holy place where the priests could go from the holy of holies, where God came with his presence, his glorious, beautiful presence. And only the high priest could enter the holy of holies and only once a year. Now we aren't sure which temple was torn here, but the, the point is the same. Matthew's being very clear. Matthew wants us to understand that our sin has kept us from God's presence. Our sin kept us from the presence of a holy, righteous, perfect God. Now, of course, Old Testament saints were able to come into God's presence. 
because they were trusting what Jesus would do on the cross. They were trusting God's promise of forgiveness through the Messiah. So they were able to access God's presence just personally in, in, their, in their hearts. But see, this picture of the curtain in the temple shows us the problem that every human being faces, which gives us another reason why Jesus' death and resurrection is the most important event in world history. Because every human being, by our sin, we are all separated from God, which is tragic if you think about it. You were created to know God. I mean, that's why you're here. You were created to have the joy of fellowshipping with God and pouring out your soul before him in prayer and receiving comfort from him. You were created to be guided by God and to glorify God and to worship God. You were created to know God. That's why you're here. But if your sin is keeping you from knowing God, then you can't live what you were created to do, which is heartbreaking and tragic. And so here we all are. Men and women, human beings, we've all sinned against God and our sin is keeping us from knowing God, loving him, worshiping him, having the greatest joy we could ever experience knowing him. The curtain is keeping us from God. But when Jesus cried out and he lit up his spirit, the curtain was torn open. And it wasn't just like ripped, it was like torn, separated, everybody could see that the priests in the holy place like, whoa, holy of holies is open, or the common people out there, whoa, holy place is open, it was open. Now this is so crucial. No one can come into God's presence, no one can know God apart from Jesus Christ. There's one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ. God has made a way. The creator of the universe has made a way for any of us to be saved, and it's through Jesus. The curtain is open. It's been torn open. Our sins no longer need separate us from God because for all those who put their trust in Jesus, they are forgiven. They are reconciled to God. God pours his love upon them. Never any punishment, never any condemnation for our sins. Forever, we're only going to know God's love and care and blessing and favor and goodness because of what Jesus did on the cross. This is earth-shaking news for humanity, and this is the most important event in world history, Jesus' death and resurrection. So the curtain rips open. And then at the same time, there's an earthquake and rocks split open, which probably shows that God's power has been unleashed through the cross. The cross finished paying for sin, so God's power is being released now through the cross. And look at one result of God's power being released. This is just fascinating. The tombs also were opened, verse 52. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So Jesus' death released God's power and God raised from the dead many saints, that just means many believers, raised them from the dead, but no one saw them. They didn't go into the city until after Jesus was raised. And the reason for that is so that everybody would understand that they were raised with Jesus because of Jesus' death linking those events closely together. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him 
keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. What's a centurion? A centurion leads 100 soldiers, significant leader in the Roman army. And the centurion and those soldiers that were with him, when they saw the earthquake and all that had took place, the centurion and all of them said, truly, this is the Son of God. Not a common criminal. This is the Son of God. They were in awe of who they saw in the person of Jesus. And then look at verses 55 and 56. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. These were followers of Jesus, disciples, women, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, these women are going to play a crucial role in the story. And here, Matthew wants us to understand that these women are seeing Jesus. They've seen him suffer, and they have seen him die. They've seen it. They were watching that happen. So in verses 50 to 56, Matthew's answering the question, who was Jesus and what did his death accomplish? And the answer that Matthew gives us by these events and what he emphasizes is that Jesus is the Son of God whose death brings sinful people to God and guarantees future resurrection. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he did. Now next, verses 57 to 66, Matthew emphasizes the burial of Jesus' body. And this is important. So he answers the question, what happens to Jesus' body? Start with verse 57. When it was evening, so this is Friday night, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Okay, so Joseph of Arimathea, follower of Jesus, asked permission, received the body, prepared it for burial, and put it in his own, in Joseph's own tomb. But again, remember or notice how Matthew emphasizes Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are there. These women have seen Jesus suffer and die, and now they've seen Jesus buried. Keep that in mind. Then look at verses 62 to 66. The next day, Saturday, that is after the day of preparation, to the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, they're talking about Jesus here, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, 
You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. One way to tell what an author is emphasizing is by noticing what words he repeats. And if you're reading carefully, I think I underlined them on the screen, notice in verses 64 to 66, we have the word secure three times, which shows that Matthew wants us to understand that the soldiers have secured the tomb. They've sealed the stone. They've set a guard. The tomb is secured. No one's going to steal the body. If the tomb is empty, it's because Jesus rose from the dead. So, the point in 57 to 56, Jesus' body was buried and secured. Now, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Did Jesus rise from the dead? All the readers of Matthew's gospel are wondering about this because Jesus had said, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified, and in three days I will rise from the dead. The religious leaders quoted that to Pilate. He said he was going to rise in three days. Let's secure the tomb. So all of us readers of Matthew's gospel are now wondering, and everything hinges on whether Jesus rises from the dead because if he does not rise from the dead, then that raises questions about everything he taught ahead of time as to whether it was true or not because this was not true. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then it just seems like he's a common criminal dying. So did Jesus rise from the dead? Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Verse 1, now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene, here they are again, and the other Mary went to see the tomb. See, these two Marys, they had seen Jesus suffer and die. They had seen Jesus' body buried. But now it's Sunday morning, and they're going to, they want to see the tomb. So what happens? Verse 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance, the angel's appearance, was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for, you know that you, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. So here's what's going on. God sends an angel. Now, change your picture of angels. Angels are not pudgy cherubs sitting on clouds plucking harps. Angels are powerful spiritual beings who in heaven right now are passionately worshiping God. Beholding his glory, shining with his glory. Angels are magnificent creatures sent by God to the earth to accomplish his purposes, and that's what's happening here. God sends this angel to the earth, and when the angel lands, there's a great earthquake, and he rolls the stone away from the tomb and sits down on it, and he is shining with so much light, seems like so much of the glory of God, that the soldiers collapse and faint. They are out unconscious there. Now, why does the angel roll away the stone? It's not so Jesus can get out of the tomb. It's clear from what Matthew's, we just read, Jesus is already raised, he's already risen, he's gone. 
So it's not to let Jesus out of the tomb, it's to let people look into the tomb and see that it's empty. And so that's why the angel rolls the stone away and he tells these women, Jesus, who was crucified, has risen just as he said. Then he continues, verse 7, the angel says, Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they, these women, departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. I just love this. This is beautiful. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now think about these women. Friday afternoon, they had heard Jesus cry out with a loud voice and yield his spirit, die. Friday evening, they saw Jesus' body securely buried in Joseph's tomb. And now Sunday morning, they see the angel, they see the stone rolled away, they see that the tomb is empty. And so as they run to tell the disciples the good news, Jesus meets them. And I love their response. They fall down, take hold of his feet, and worship him. This is the most important event in world history. Because Jesus died, that means that men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe can be forgiven completely by God for their sins and restored into relationship with God, have the joy of knowing God forever. We can be saved, we can be forgiven, we can be reconciled to God. His crucifixion is the most important event along with the resurrection which then corroborates everything that Jesus had said was the meaning of his death on the cross. This is the most important event in world history, Jesus' death and resurrection. Now what does this mean for us today? I want you to think about the women taking hold of Jesus' feet and worshiping him. That struck me this week very powerfully. <laughs> One reason is the fact that they took hold of Jesus' feet and worshiped him shows that Jesus is not just a vision. You don't take hold of a vision's feet and worship him. He's not just a vision. He's not just um, like a spirit. No, this is very clear. God raised Jesus bodily, physically, from the dead. He was there, resurrected body, real, tangible, with feet they could take hold of and worship. So this is real. Jesus is real. He's real. He's alive today. This also struck me that, that you can't get any lower before someone. You can't humble yourself any more lower than, than if you're taking hold of his feet and worshiping him. Do you see that? They were humbling themselves with joy before Jesus. And I think they did this for a couple reasons. One is they, they recognized, they knew, this is the Son of God. Jesus, you are God in the flesh. God, you've come to earth in the person of Jesus. I want to humble myself as much as I possibly can and worship you because you are 
God in the flesh. Also, they realized we've sinned against God and there is nothing we can do to make up for our sin. We are helpless, hopeless sinners in need of mercy and grace and a Savior. And Jesus, you are that merciful, gracious Savior. So we humble ourselves. We have nothing to bring to you except our sinfulness and our need. And we call upon you for mercy. And Jesus loves to answer people who call upon him for mercy. And so they're, they're humbling themselves before Jesus because he's the Son of God and because they realize they are sinners and can do nothing to save themselves. They need Jesus to save them. And then there's a third reason. It's because they recognize that through Jesus they can be completely forgiven for their sins, restored to God. There's nothing more glorious than this love. There's nothing more glorious than this mercy. There's nothing more glorious than this person, Jesus Christ. God's glory is shining through him. They want to fall down before him, hold on to his feet and worship, worship him in humility and submission and joy. And God wants each of us this morning in our hearts to take hold of Jesus' feet, to get humble and submitted before him in our hearts to take hold of Jesus' feet and to worship him. God wants you in your heart to do that this morning. That's the takeaway from this passage. Some of you, I would guess, have, have never put your trust in Jesus. You're here, you're not a follower of Jesus yet. And we are glad you're here. Uh, and we, we want you to become followers of Jesus. There is nothing like knowing Jesus Christ. There's no joy like knowing him. There's no security like knowing him. There is nothing like knowing Jesus Christ. And God is calling you right now to come before Jesus in your heart and take hold of his feet as a way of saying, I understand I'm a sinner. I understand you are the son of God. I understand that the only way I can be forgiven and reconciled to God is through your death. So I trust you. I turn from my sin. Save me. That's what God's calling you to do today. And as you do that, you will be saved. He will pour his love into your heart. He will pour into your heart the joy you're meant to have in knowing him. You will be transformed. So if you're not trusting Christ yet, God right now is calling you to humble yourself before Jesus, take hold of his feet, and worship. Others of you... I would guess, are here, and you have put your trust in Jesus at some past time, but you have wandered. You have drifted. You have stopped battling sin, and you've started embracing sin, and your heart has become complacent towards Christ, lukewarm towards Christ, maybe even hard towards Christ, and you are in a dangerous dangerous position if that's you but God right now you're here for a reason because he loves you there's no accident and God is calling you to fall at Jesus feet hold on to his feet humble yourself in that way as a way of saying I'm sorry what have I done how could I have come and then walked away I'm back forgive me change me help me and he will forgive you he will help you. He will change you. You will leave here transformed. Others of you, one more group, you've been following Jesus. You've been fighting sin. 
you've been battling unbelief, you've been battling worry, you've been going through trials, maybe you've been experiencing some persecution for your faith, you've been sharing your testimony, you've been reaching out to lost people, you've been following Jesus Christ faithfully. Not perfectly, you've sinned, but you've confessed, you've come back, you've been following Christ, you've been glorifying Christ, and God is just smiling upon you today, and he says, fall at Jesus' feet and take hold of his feet in the way of saying, you are worth it all. What a savior, what mercy, what grace. I am forgiven, I am redeemed, I will be resurrected, I have eternity, you are worth it all. In a fresh way, I wanna say, I'm gonna follow you, honor you, serve you, glorify you for the rest of my life. I fall at your feet, I take hold of your feet, I worship you, that's what God's calling you to do. If you haven't trusted Christ, if you have and have drifted, if you have and you are continuing to follow him, God's calling all of us to take hold of Jesus' feet and worship him. Let's pray together. Why don't you stand? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you'd bring your power upon us right now. Take these words from your word. Take these words from the scripture. Give us exactly what we need. Change our hearts. Give us faith. Give us repentance. Give us confession. Come and work with power right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.